Our text is in Matthew 2. It's the story of the Magi. Today we're going to look at the story of Christ in a unique way from a unique perspective of unexpected people checking out the marvelous Christ. Listen to reading God's Word from Matthew 2. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod and the king, Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another wit way. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Well, it's Christmas season. It is a time of giving gifts to friends and loved ones. It is a great tradition of our uh, religion to give, and even it has made its way into our culture. You know, sometimes giving takes a striking form amidst people. Take this past October, at a high school JV football game all the way down in Brandon, Mississippi, it's where the Brandon Bulldogs uh, were taking on the Northwest Rankin Cougars. According to WLBT News, the game started like any other, and as the football game progressed, Brandon uh, built a lead of 21 to nothing uh, into the second quarter over uh, Northwest Rankin. Brandon High School at this point seemed to be cruising to a win. When things got even worse for Northwest Rankin as a school, the Northwest Rankin quarterback got hurt and could not get back on the field. Northwest Rankin didn't have a backup quarterback for their JV team. So they tried one kid after another, but things went from bad to worse in the game. The home team Bulldogs on the other side, the Brandon Bulldogs, had a different problem. They had two good quarterbacks on their team. So the coach of Brandon uh, 
patched a scheme with one of his quarterbacks before the end of the second quarter. And uh, he then approached the Northwest Rankin coach at the, at the halftime break and gave him an offer. He offered his starting quarterback to play for the other team. His name was uh, uh, Mason Matthew. And uh, the Brandon co- coach wanted him to be the, the primary quarterback for Northwest Rankin. The Rankin coach accepted the offer and jokingly told uh, Matthew that if he messed up or played poorly, he would yank him in a heartbeat. The amazing thing about this is Matthew went out and he played for the next two quarters for Northwest Rankin for the other team and helped them score two two touchdowns so that the final score of the game was Brandon 46, Northwest Rankin 14. To everyone's remembrance, no team's ever done this. It's one thing to give, and we hear some really inspiring stories of how uh, football teams, high school teams do some amazing things for other teams, but there's nothing quite like giving up your best player to the other team. Well, folks, that's the striking form that giving takes, not only in this game with the Brandon Bulldogs and the Northwest Rankin Cougars, but even in the Gospels today. In Matthew 2, where we see an example of how the God of the universe gives in such generous and striking ways his own son, his first string quarterback, his only quarterback, if you will, so that we might know salvation in life. Today in Matthew 2, in this part of the Christmas story, we're going to look at a striking case of giving, not just from Christ, but even from another group of men in the Magi. And in the process, we're going to ask three big questions. Why did the Magi give uh, so generously and seek to give? Uh, What was the difference about their giving? That is, what was the contrast that we see in the text about their giving? And then finally, how did they give in a, such a striking way. So the striking aspects of this text will come first in the contrast we see in Matthew 2. And the first striking contrast shows up in verse 1 of our text, where, uh, uh, G, uh, where actually the Magi present an interesting situation for the people of Jerusalem. In verse 1 it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, the whole wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, the first striking contrast we have in our text is between two kings. And the two kings involved uh, uh, come in interesting ways. The first would be Jesus himself, the child Jesus Christ, born to humble, obscure teenage parents in Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem, you should know, was only about six miles away south of Jerusalem, kind of the distance that Matthew's is from Charlotte in many ways. And Jesus was, of course, God's gift uh, to us in a broken world. And according to the gospel, he was the long-awaited Messiah, the hero that got it right and was supposed to get it right, the one that Scripture had talked about from Genesis on, that all of us in our hearts long for, yes, even God's people throughout the Old Testament. 
And he came into the world not to help uh, people have uh, be nicer people with better morals. He came into the world to save sinners who were lost, broken people who needed to be redeemed and changed. And in the scriptures, in particularly the New Testament, he is called several things to describe his saving and messianic role. He's called the Son of God. That magnificent title that shows he was born in a different way than the rest of us. Uh, we are born one way with our parents, but Jesus was born in the power of the Holy Spirit, begotten, not made, is what we often say in the creeds. What that means is he always existed before time and existed even before his birth as the eternal Son of God. In the Gospels, he's also called the Son of Man. Not only the Son of God, but the Son of Man. And, and that grand title comes from the Old Testament in Daniel that describes this great king who had access to God like no other and had an ability to relate to God like no other. And just a few verses before us, uh, our uh, Matthew 2 text, in Matthew 1 is another title that was given to Christ. Emmanuel which in the Aramaic or Hebrew means God with us. All of this idea of God being with us as the Son of God and the Son of Man in Christ pointed to the real glorious beauty that God moved towards us before we moved towards Him. God entered into our world, which is radically different than all the other gods that you would find in the ancient Near East and even the Roman Empire. Even in our time, there aren't gods who move towards you first. They're almost always waiting for you to make the first move towards them. The radical, aspect, the radical piece about this whole idea of God moving towards us in Christ as a son of God and son of man is that he was born in poverty. He was born in obscurity. He wasn't born to fanfare. There was no Facebook or Twitter post about him. There was no marketing campaign. There was no million-dollar commercial during the Super Bowl. In point, point of fact, very few people noticed when he came. What's that got to do with us today? Well, God the Son often shows up unnoticed in our own lives. He's moving. He's working. He's active. And sometimes we don't notice. But here's the beauty of that truth, that Jesus is active in our lives. Frederick Beekner says it this way, You can never be sure of this Christ. You can never be sure of, of Him again. If the Son of God can show up in a manger, you can never be sure what links, what humiliation He will go to in His pursuit of you. Of men. There is no place we can hide from him in our darkness because he will still come and meet us there. Christ, the Son of Man, is not afraid to save us in our darkest moments, whatever that looks like for you and for me. And some of us here today come with burdens in our hearts about relationships, family, health, a whole host of things. If Christ could come into our world as the holy, perfect Son of God, He will descend and love you where you are now. 
Christ offers a salvation that is radical and different than anything we're used to in this world. But there is a striking contrast of him as king versus another as king in our text today. Verse 1 talks about Herod the king. Now, at first glance, if you were to go back in Herod's time living in Judea, you would have found he was a pretty popular and effective king. After all, he ruled for 35 years. He brought wealth. He brought prosperity to Judah. He was one of those who back in the 90s would have said, it's about the economy, stupid. And he did it in partnership with the Romans. He built cities like Caesarea Philippi. He built fortresses like a place called Masada. He even upgraded the temple, which back then was looking pretty dumpy, and then he put tons of money into it so it looked a little bit like the Taj Mahal. But here's the thing about Herod. He was not a king by right. He was a king by appointment of the Romans. He was really, in fact, a lot like a ruthless Roman leader. He built the temple up as a Jew, but he also built pagan temples all around in Judah and even up to Antioch. He also, as according to uh, Roman historical records, not only ruled ruthlessly with people he uh, considered a threat, he even killed his own family members, his wife and some of his children, because he was threatened by them. This is pretty extraordinary, this contrast between Christ and Herod. You've got two kings in close proximity, one unnoticed, one visible, one vulnerable and even humble as a child, one who does everything to keep power. How does this apply to us today? Well, we are pulled by different kings, by different authorities in our lives. Some of those authorities are very good authorities. The boss at work, uh, the leaders at church, civic leaders for kids who may be here. Your parents are appropriate authorities in your life. We, in this room, even play roles as authorities in different contexts. But here's the question. Which one wins? Which one is the top authority? Who is the ultimate king? The legitimate king? That's what this whole text is about. It's about what's a legitimate king look like. In our text, this presents an ironic king. Christ as the humble, legitimate king who is unexpected and obscure at first versus Herod, who is full of money and power, but is corrupt to the deepest parts of the soul. So, how do we know who to answer to? Well, there's a group of guys in our text who actually had to figure that out themselves in our text, and they are called the Magi. And the Magi uh, came into Jerusalem, according to our text, and caused a great stir with the announcement of, of a question they had. And it says they came from the east, likely 800 miles away, where, where they probably came from Persia or, or, or Babylon. 
And they came to Herod and the religious leaders because they were used to working with important people. That's what Magi often served in a cultural context back in the Middle East. They served as counsel for national and local leaders. They were the knowledge class, if you will, of the Middle, of Middle Eastern culture. And yet they came in this case not offering knowledge, but curious, asking an important question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, before we dive into this part of this important text of these guys really asking this crucial question, we need to set some facts straight about the Magi. There is some confusion about them due to a lot of cultural baggage in our age. First, there weren't three of them. There weren't three kings, though the popular hymn says so. Fact of the matter is we don't know how many there were. It could have been two. It could have been 20. Add to that their normal traveling party that important people would have in those days. They had probably quite a few people with them at the time. Second, they didn't show up at the manger. You see that in a lot of pictures and Bible study guides or even uh, the little crash scene that a lot of us put out in the yard or even on our mantles in some cases. The fact of the matter is our text itself says in verse 11 that they came to find Jesus at a house. And if you look at the timing with later on a conversation that... Uh, um, Herod is involved with, it's likely they came up to two years after Jesus was born. Third, and this is also key, lest there might be skeptics among us, the Magi were real people, real historical people in a real movement. Roman historians actually talk about Magi visiting in Rome as well as other places from around the world. We have these guys who are coming into Jerusalem and they are bringing a real question that all of us have to live with. Now, you got to know that there is a background that, that extends beyond even history with these guys. There is a biblical history with them. They come, uh, the prophetic book of Daniel actually talks about Daniel and his three friends being magi. It uses that very word to describe them. Daniel 2 describes Daniel as a being among them, serving counsel to Nebuchadnezzar, and then later on, the Persian king Darius. But instead of using things like astrology, which the magi were used to using, and even magic, Daniel and his three friends used the word of God to counsel the leaders of that nation. So Herod uh, and the, his men were sitting there in Jerusalem one day, and in comes the uh, Magi asking this profound question. I bet it was like a bomb in their midst. You know, they asked this question, where is the king of the Jews who was born to you? And they were going like, what are you talking about, the king of the Jews born? Remember, Herod is the king of the Jews, technically. And everybody's looking around going, did they just ask what I think they just asked? It'd be a little bit like somebody walking into Washington of great significance from around the nation, maybe a representative of the nation, saying, where's the real president? People would freak. You can imagine the Fox News trucks, the NBC News trucks, 
all start flying in immediately, getting all this on film because everybody's going crazy over this whole thing. So they ask him, why would you ask? You can imagine them asking, rather, the Magi, why would you ask such a thing? And then they tell us in our text there are two reasons. The first is the star led us here, and the second is we want to worship him. We'll focus on the first few uh, first now. We'll deal with the other one later. But clearly these religious leaders were troubled by this. So they went and they did their homework in their Bible because they knew their Bible among the scribes and, and even the chief priests. And they found that indeed uh, they answered the, the Magi that the, the Son of God, that is rather the, the Messiah, the Christ, was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And so... Uh, we have to ask this, how did the Magi know about the Christ? How did they know uh, how to find him for that matter? Well, the short answer is this. They had the star with a background story. The star with a background story. Apparently, there was this leading light, a star that the Magi followed. And granted, astronomical theories have been all over the place about uh, even people trying to make the Bible and uh, astronomy work together. Some say it was a supernova that came up in the, in the, right before uh, Herod's death that was in the sky and was guiding them. Others say it was a confluence of like, um, of like Venus and Jupiter in the sky at the same time making a really bright light with two, two planets coming together. That happened in 3 B.C. actually. But there's a problem with these views in this story. And the problem is, in our text, the star moves. It moves to the place where it goes right over the house. And we have to ask, what is going on with this star thing? This isn't your average star. Well, I've got to answer your question with a question. Where in Scripture do we know of a light, a pillar of fire, that led God's people through the wilderness. Well, it's back in the Exodus story, where God's people wandered in the wilderness by night and by day, and God's Holy Spirit in a theophany shows up as a light to guide them. In other words, the Magi were being led by the light of the Holy Spirit, God showing up personally in those rare moments in history where He does that. They were also being led by something else, the prophetic promises of Scripture. Daniel's influence 500 years earlier was still felt by these magi in this text. Perhaps it was Daniel who told the Babylonians and then the Persians, uh, especially among the magi, of a coming king, the true king, who would bring life and light. Maybe Daniel told him about Numbers 24, 17, where Balaam predicts, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. You see, these magi were looking for Christ in the Holy Spirit. And because they hoped in the promises of Scripture, they found the Christ. And folks, that is what we're called to in our life. When we have a sense of longing and waiting in life for anything. For anything in relationships, in vocation, financially, whatever it is. 
Your job is to look to the promises of God in Scripture, to what He says will come and will be, what is true. And you look to those promises as the Holy Spirit fills you. The Spirit leads you according to the truth of the Word in a personal way with God. This is what it's like to follow Christ. And the wonder of this text is that when you feel like life is not making sense and you need that leading, Christ moves into your life. You may have to wait for Him. You may have to wait for a while. But He will move into your life with the truth found in Scripture and with the Spirit working in your soul. That's what these magi were working with as they sought Christ in their lives. But this leads us to a striking contrast in our text. Again, the disposition of two groups of people towards Christ. That of the Magi over and against Herod and the religious leaders. You notice the Magi noticed Christ coming and were even looking for him through Scripture. Herod and the religious authorities knew Scripture, but they didn't notice even though Christ was born six miles away and a star was in the sky. The Magi sought Christ out at great effort and expense. Herod and the others didn't seek Christ, but sought to use the Magi so that they could ultimately kill Christ because he was a threat to Herod's reign. The Magi, they believed Scripture. And were led by the Holy Spirit. Herod was led by a love of power. That so corrupted him that he killed all the children to and under. In Bethlehem. Just a short while after the, um, the Magi left. That, my friends, is what a wicked king does. Killing the little ones in infanticide. Just like... Pharaoh did back before the Exodus. This is a striking contrast. The Gentile Magi seek out Christ while the Jewish king doesn't. What can we glean from this? Well, the number one error of religious people like you and me is we miss the forest for the trees. The obvious of the gospel because Jesus becomes too familiar to us. Grace stops becoming amazing to us. We settle for the benefits of grace without longing for the giver of grace. We were redeemed for a purpose as God's people. We were redeemed to seek Christ out, whether times are good or even when they're not so good. Even when there's resistance in our lives, we're called to pursue Him and the starting point to doing that is getting back to Christ himself. The one who loved us and gave himself for us. Christmas is about God seeking us first and giving life to all of us. 
Even believers get so caught up in worldliness in our time that we miss the wonders of Christ moving towards us even in that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor. Some of you may have heard of him. He lived during Nazi Germany and was a part of the resistance against uh, Nazi Germany. He was eventually imprisoned by Hitler during World War II for resisting uh, Nazism, even being a part of a plot to kill Hitler. Bonhoeffer wrote his fiancée from prison and said that life really is a lot like living in a prison cell. You feel stuck. and You can't move as much as you want, and yet you hope for, you long for freedom. But here's the gospel that, that um, Bonhoeffer said is so good. He said that freedom that we long for is completely dependent on the fact that someone has to open the door on the outside. That's what Christianity and Christmas is about. We're trying to open the door from the inside in our brokenness, in things like our sin that we can't escape, and God offers to come and open the door and free us himself in Christ. The Magi came looking for that freedom. That's why they came to Christ. They had all the knowledge and riches. They had everything, but they knew they had nothing. And the result was they came longing that Christ would be the one who would open their prison doors. You know what we call the seeking that they do in our text today? We call it faith. Faith. The active pursuit of Christ by listening to his word in the gospel and the leading of the Holy Spirit. The Magi express faith in seeking Christ out. And that leads us to one last question. By faith, how did they respond to the finding of Christ? Well, we know Herod didn't respond very well. He went on the hunt for Christ and tried to hunt him down and kill him, just like a despot. But on the other hand, the Magi gave to Christ in four distinct ways by faith. Our text says at the end of our text, it says they rejoiced with thanks. When they uh, found the place, it says, with the help of the Holy Spirit star, they rejoiced exceedingly. You know how it says they, they rejoiced exceedingly with great rejoicing. It's, the, the Greek here is really simple. It's basically they were in the last second of the game on the sideline at a Panthers game. And the Panthers throw a last second touchdown and everybody goes nuts with high fives. That's what kind of rejoicing they were doing. It was excitement to the highest degree. Then they went in the house. And imagine this, going in a house, finding Christ and his mother, and he's a toddler. Imagine the little kids who are up here today, they're toddlers, and falling down and bowing before that Christ. These well-known, rich, influential men getting on their knees. It's not just the curtsy bow, if you will, of honor to someone. It's on their knees in worship to him. Then they pull out these gifts. 
These gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, these are expensive gifts. They're costly. But they give them freely to Christ and his parents. Why? Because they saw Jesus as the gift of gifts. The king of kings who came to save them from a dark world where body and soul degraded due to sin, but where Christ came to bring life. I might even add that the gifts they gave weren't not uncommon to be given in a funeral, not just at a birth. Maybe this is an allusion to the coming crucifixion of Christ where he would even drink myrrh from the cross. Fourth and finally, the most beautiful thing in this text is, despite Herod's counsel to come back and tell him where the, where the Christ was, they go the other direction. In other words, they gave their allegiance to Christ. They didn't do what King Herod said, but protected Christ and took his side as the ultimate and final king for them. In other words, if you could sum up all that they gave, is they gave themselves away to Christ. Everything they had. And that's what Christianity is about. A God who gives everything for us in a Christ on a cross, dying for our sin, resurrected to give us life, even in the Spirit. And we give ourselves to Him by faith. Bowing, submitting to Him as the one final Lord, Son of God, Son of Man over us. On this Christmas day, on this Christmas week, where we are doing the business of giving to one another out of love, out of family, out of generosity, don't forget to give yourself to Christ. There is no one else who has given all like him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come today praising you that you are the one true Christ. There is none like you. And we ask you, Lord, to dwell in our hearts even this week with the busyness of Christmas, with our jobs, with so many demands on our lives, travel. We ask you to break into our world to move towards us, that we might bow before you as the one who has loved us. Give us those quiet moments to dwell on your glory and your beauty, Jesus. Give us those moments that we might give ourselves to you, even when it's hard with the demands of life, busyness, with difficult people in our lives. Move towards us, Lord, that we might move towards you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Come, let us give our allegiance.